With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. For one more beer for me, exile means quality, so savagely. HN Podcast. I'm John Miller, along with Steve Dace. Long time no talk. Hope you are all enjoying this new year. Steve, let's um, let's go back before we look forward. Talk about Big Ten Bowl performances. The last we left, you tossed out some of your thoughts on each of the Big Ten Bowls. Let's go in order that they were played. Iowa fans, we will certainly get to the Outback Bowl. But, uh, Steve, what about... Minnesota, 34, Georgia Tech, 10, a nice manhandling of the Yellow Jackets, an outgoing coach, Paul Johnson, by Minnesota. Minnesota really ends the season as one of the hottest teams in the Big Ten. No doubt. And, um, again, I know people want to keep making, particularly the guy on the other side of this uh, podcast, wants to keep making uh, Tim Brewster comparisons. But as I've said all along, there is no comparison. Um, I, I don't know how good of a football coach P.J. Fleck is. We'll find that out. But he's actually a football coach. Tim Brewster was never a coach. Um, he was a glorified recruiter. He's never built a program. Uh, Fleck built a program at Western Michigan from literally primordial ooze to 12-0. and 0. And, and, and and yes, I know under uh, Tim Brewster, his second year, I think, just like with Fleck, they went 7-6. and six. But the difference is this 7-6 and six is a lot more meaningful. I mean, Minnesota won at Wisconsin, right. I, I think, for the first time this century. I mean, it's been a long time. Uh, and then, you know, to win a bowl game and to do it, uh, rush defense has been their weakness all year long. I think they started eight freshman-eligible players in the game, John. So... Mm-hmm. You know, what, what? here's what a coach like P.J. Fleck needs is and he needs buy-in factor, right? right? His persona is so much different. And to, if I was going to use a theological analogy for our more theologically-minded listeners, uh, imagine you're an old-school Missouri Synod Lutheran church or old-school Reformed church, and the pastor says, well, here's our new youth pastor, and in walks Pentecostal guy with you know uh with with this charismatic attitude and you're like what in the sam hill is this okay so it it is culturally so much different from what you're accustomed to if you go back tracy clay's jerry kill 
Glenn Mason. I mean, these guys won a lot of games in Minnesota, but none of them were, you know, uh, guys that were going to be hits on the speaking circuit. So if you're going to bring in a guy with his attitude, and because of what happened with Tim Brewster, you're, he's good. At, he's going to need buy-in, and eventually, after the first year, the buy-in's going to come with results on the field. And what those two wins, particularly the one at Wisconsin, gave him was buy-in. And what happens is now, now his personality goes from quirky to off-putting to is this sincere to now it's all buy-in now and i think i think um if you were going to stop him you needed to not let him off the mat in year two yeah but now that now that they've established a program there with some buy-in i'd look out if i don't yeah i don't disagree with anything you said i'm not a fan of his style but it has nothing i have nothing against him personally i'm just not I'm not that big of a rah-rah kind of guy. I, I, sure. I just I, I don't care for those things. But clearly, a lot of people do. He's recruited there, uh, at least on paper, at a pretty high level. Uh, you know, relative to that program's history, we'll see how he does in development. We'll see how he does in the trenches. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, but he's he's done a good job. I certainly give him that, and and I don't have any problem admitting when I'm wrong. And really, it's more about. <sighs> I'm just not a fan of that, uh, of his model. So next up was Wisconsin against Miami. And that game went, Steve, about the way that we caught, we thought a cold football game mm-hmm. in New York between Wisconsin and Miami was going to go. But we certainly didn't envision Miami needing a coaching change. No. Uh, you know, Miami looked like a team that did not want to be there. And uh, I wasn't surprised, and neither were you. We kind of thought it was going to go this way. We didn't think either team was really that great, but that the best unit on the field that could be the most dependable, regardless of you know the emotion level of the two teams, was going to be Wisconsin's offensive line. And uh, and obviously, you know, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Taylor, who's an outstanding tailback. So that was the difference in the game, no question about it. And uh, that's a nice boost for Wisconsin. And uh, and it was a nice win for the Big Ten. And I think it clearly shook Mark Rick up to the point that uh, he went home for about a week, prayed about it, and out of nowhere, quit. And I think that shocked and stunned everybody. Uh, it's one of the most stunning uh, devolutions we've seen in recent college football history. We're talking about a program that went into the penultimate week of 2017, just a year ago. They went into the second to last week of the season, number two in the country. And... And then they started number nine in the preseason. They go seven and six, and the coach retires. And I don't know that anybody saw that coming, John. Um, that sport, that job, I think takes a lot out of people. And if you're not all in, then you might as well get out. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't blame him. And I, I, you know what? It, it, it's easy to stay and take money when your heart's not in something and, mm-hmm. and linger a couple of extra years. It's hard to walk away from it for reasons, the right reasons, honest reasons, and he did that, so I tip my cap to him. Um, Purdue, holy smokes, Auburn 63, Purdue 14. If I remember correctly, I think, I think you had some concerns maybe a little bit about this, but I don't know that anybody, well, it was the most historic first half in bowl history, 56 to seven was the halftime score. Right. Yeah, I like, you know, what's funny is I liked Purdue a lot in this game. I just thought that um, given the season Auburn had, uh, preseason top 10 to 7-5, and five, 
Uh, and then you throw in all the turmoil they've had since the season ended. Uh, Jared Stidham goes pro, and then is he going to play? Is he not going to play? Decides at the last minute he's going to play. Uh, they have an offensive coordinator uh, switch, and you know there's two weeks of stories that Gus Malzahn is negotiating away uh, power in order to hold on to his job, and that Auburn it might be seriously interested in paying a $49 million buyout. I mean, I just thought there's no way. And then, you know, throwing Purdue with Chef Brom coming back. And a, a lot of these guys are coming back. And, you know, David Blau's going pro, but Elijah Sindelar is going to be back at quarterback next year. And he led him to a bowl victory a season ago. He redshirted this year. So I just thought this is a classic case of the team that had, you know, Purdue's looking at the Music City Bowl as a reward. And Auburn's looking at it as a sentencing. Um, and, you know, what happened is the exact opposite. And what happened is uh, Auburn came to play, and so now it became the Jimmys and the Joes and not the X's and the O's. And you're dealing with, you know, a roster that in my roster strength heading into this year, I had one of the top ten rosters in college football, and I had Purdue, one of the five least talented teams in the Big Ten. And so when that team with the far more talent uh, comes to play, well, you saw what the result of that was. And I don't think it's anything other than just simply that. Indeed. Uh, Florida. 41, Michigan 15. Michigan had, what, four players sit out this game who um, Mm -hmm. sat out the bowl game. You know, I mean, Florida was ranked number 10 in the country coming into this game. They've got good players, too. I don't don't know, though. I I mean, you had had a fairly epic meltdown on Twitter with regards to maybe your faith being shattered with regards to Jim Harbaugh. I mean, you can tell it better than I can. What what do you what were your feelings then and do you feel any differently now that the emotions over? Well, I think having that many guys sit out is part of the job of coaching. You know, we had we had two captains sit out, John, and both of them are from the state of Florida. And this is a New Year's Six bowl game. And I don't want to hear any talk of meaningless games and all that other garbage. Um, all the stats are kept. The final results count. We're going to have polls at the end. They're going to be the actual final rankings. Um, you know, records that are set go into the NCAA record book. And Florida has almost as many guys that are going to, that are highly regarded in the NFL draft as we do. Every single one of them played. So is that a football um, culture deal a little bit? You think? Yes, I do think it is. Absolutely, you bet it is. You know, here's what I think. In general, I think what would I say if this was somebody else I didn't care about or didn't like or mm-hmm. didn't before? Yeah. And this is what I would say. Um, uh, it was a really bad look. Even worse, um, you know, you've got all these receivers they've recruited, and they come out here and run the same run run every every first down for 2.1 yards a carry that killed them against Ohio State. So they had an entire bull practice, showed really no different looks at all, didn't do anything different at all. Um, it left their fans, you know, everybody that started that game except for Chase Winovich and Zach Gentry, Zach Gentry. So, and David Long. So, what? 18 of the 22 guys that started in that game, I think, are going to be back from Michigan next year. Wow. And so, this, so this was a because of the four guys that also left. Yeah, this is not a. This is a pretty young team, actually. It's just a lot of them are sophomores and juniors. So. Um, you know, this was an excellent opportunity to get a bunch of young guys and to show the fans, hey, we can evolve the offense and things of that nature. And uh, they showed nothing. 
Uh, Don Brown's defense got destroyed again, uh, just playing man-to-man all over the field in situations that are just beyond ridiculous, leaving the A-gap wide open for Felipe Franks like a freaking high school game just to run up the middle for 40 yards. It's just Little League. It's atrocious. And um, what it is, it's gimmicky. And what's happened with Don Brown's defense, you know, I kind of think unless you're going to play a conservative style of defense, and even Iowa has evolved theirs over the years a little bit. But if you're going to, you know, I, I think with when the with all the every rules change for the last 20 years has benefited the offense. So I think in general, if you believe in aggressive defense, you almost always you almost have to reinvent yourself every few years because there's just so many systemic advantages for the offensive guys that um, you really need to have a tendency advantage and things that you haven't shown on film and situational, um, you know, play calls and things of that nature. And what we're seeing now, and I wrote about this Wolverine digest is when Michigan plays a team that recruits at or slightly above its level, like in Ohio state, Don Brown's defense can't stop them because they play too much man. And those guys can win those battles. So if, if, you know, since this is the HN podcast, let me give your listeners an example. Basically Don Brown's scheme is how you have wondered why teams don't play Iowa every week. Okay. That's essentially Don Brown's scheme. And so when we play 80% of the teams in college football, or maybe 75%, and that's about Jim Harbaugh's winning percentage at Michigan, when we pay, play 75% of the teams in college football, we recruit better than 75% of those teams. And they can't win those one-on-one battles. When we play against the teams recruiting at or above the level we are, they exploit those advantages. And we saw that again in the last two games of this year. They don't evolve the offense at the same token. And... You know, we're sitting here through year four, John, and he's one in nine against AP top 10 teams, has no wins over Ohio State, no divisional championships, no conference championships. So it's not a lack of faith. You know, I don't care if the coach is Jim Harbaugh or John Miller. You know, I mean, I'd love it if the guy who was my favorite player when I was a kid was a great coach. But if John Miller wins me more games as a fan... Hey, Jim, I enjoyed you as a, as a player 20 years ago. So I don't care who's coaching the team. I have faith in results. I have faith in tangible outcomes. And those outcomes ain't good enough. And as I wrote today over at Wolverine Digest, I could name right now five coaches in the Big Ten, maybe, at least. D'Antonio, Ference, Fitzgerald, that's three. Christ, four. Brom, five. At least five coaches. And James Franklin, I'd put him in there, six. I think those are at least that's six coaches in our league that if they had Michigan's program and advantages, they could win 73.5% of their games over a four-year period, too. So I think that 2019 will either be the year that they win the championship and or beat Ohio State, or I think he'll go back to the NFL. I think the situation is deteriorating rapidly amongst the fan base. Uh, they basically gave back all their tickets to the bowl game. It was a Florida home game if you go back and watch that. And it's in Atlanta, guys. I mean, it's a easy, one of the easiest places in America to fly in and out of. It's a central hub. Michigan has the largest alumni base in the country. Um, you know, this just – he just can't stay going eight and four, nine and three, you know. Uh, that won't work. And so I think this is the put-up or shut-up here, John. I really do. Yeah, I'm I- – well said. Didn't realize they turned some tickets uh, tickets back in. So a lot of work in the offseason and more work. We'll talk about that, some of that probably in the Bigger Ten podcast with regards to some coaching losses. Northwestern played Utah. Northwestern won 31-20. They had a 28-point 
third quarter, and all of the Northwestern fans I follow on Twitter were calling it the best quarter in Northwestern football history as the Wildcats win the Holiday Bowl. Well, you know, Fitzgerald's just, uh, he's just a dude, man. He's the man crush right now. And uh, to get to nine wins in a division title with that team, I mean, if I would have told you when Larkin got hurt, what was like week three? Oh, yeah. That they were gonna they're gonna play in Indianapolis and win a bowl game and get to nine wins. You'd have said what? No uh-huh. way. I mean, you would have we would have you and I would have said at the time if they just get bowl eligible, Fitzgerald ought to be a Big Ten coach of the year. So uh, I just think um, I think the guy's a hell of a football coach, an even better leader of men. I've often wondered, as we've talked about on the podcast, what would happen if he was at a school that had uh i mean his facilities now are pretty good so a wider recruiting base maybe right. is, is, the, is the missing component but less restrictive we'll, uh, academics yep i don't know that we'll ever find that out i mean he's a perfect fit he's in a situation now where um you know you look at the history that he has there as a player and as a coach he could have a few down years and no one would call chicago radio demanding no his way. head and, you know, there's something to be said for that in life, particularly when you're making the kind of money he's making and he's earned it. And yeah, no one really calls Chicago radio to say anything about Northwestern, good or bad, but your point still stands. <laughs> there's no bigger fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes than Iowa's premier dish retailer, Big Dog Satellite and Solar. If you can't watch live, there's no better way to record every game than the hopper from Dish. Search or call Big Dog today and ask for the Hawkeye Tailgater Special. Michigan State, Oregon. Michigan State, to their credit, they, there was only one way they could win this game, and that was to get Oregon to, as you like to refer to it, play in the pitch. Yep. Uh, and Michigan State did. Michigan State just I, – I, I, I remember you talking about it all summer long, how their roster 1 through 22 was right up there with the best in the Big Ten this year, but that they could ill afford injury. And granted, they've had some injuries, but man – does that explain Brian Lewerke's regression? I mean, coming into this season, he was probably what third-rated quarterback in the league. Looked like yeah. a, a surefire NFL guy, maybe even after this year. And holy smokes, just not good, not good. I don't think the injuries can explain the offensive inadequacies that we saw that we saw entirely. Well, they couldn't really run the ball last year either. And I mean, and they finally had to give up the ghost. And I mean, there were games where he was thrown 50 times, a couple of games. I think there's a combination of things that happened to them. Uh, number one, uh, the offensive line was bad. Uh, this might have been the worst offensive line D'Antonio's had at Michigan State. Between, you know, I mean, they, they've lost a lot in graduation up there in the last couple of years. They hadn't replenished them in recruiting. And then they had more injuries and attrition. So. I mean, this is this is it's the of all the Big Ten teams that made bowl games. This one is easily the worst offensive line. And then you throw in injuries at the skill position. I mean, it was really a lost season for L.J. Scott between suspension and injury. Um, it, you know what happened with Felton Davis against Michigan, where he just collapsed out there on the field, uh, getting ready for the next play with an Achilles. Cody White was hurt early in the year. The, the other guy, you know, so you had injuries at the skill positions, injuries, and a lack of development uh, and talent in the offensive line. And then eventually, if you don't give a quarterback a supporting cast, and you've already got coordinators now with an entire season of film on Brian Lewerke, 
and so you were already going into this year where coordinators are like, okay, and here's and here's where fans need to understand what we mean when we talk about this. What we mean is. It's not that they they know what his throwing motion is, or and that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is they've had an entire off season to break down their film, and so they know that on third and seven or longer, here are the three routes Brian Lewerke feels the most confident throwing. So we're going to ro- roll our coverage over there to take those away, and make, and prove to us he can beat us. With these other with these other throws, find out are those the routes he likes because those are the ones they called, or did they call those routes because those are the ones that he liked? Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. That's what we mean. You just saw this in the NFL yesterday with the Ravens. So you know Lamar Jackson has been blowing up NFL defenses running the ball. Well, yesterday was the first. Time. I think the Chargers were either his first or second start in the NFL, and they beat him. So the Chargers now have a full game of film on him. Here's what he did to us the last time. So they took all of his best options away and made him play left-handed, and he couldn't play left-handed. All right, that's what I mean by you—you're you, already were gonna—you already knew some of uh, more about him than you knew the year before, and now you're taking away his margin for error with they can't the fact they can't protect him, and then he's got really nobody to throw to either. So you throw all those things in, and you're looking at wasting for Michigan State what was a historically great defense for them. I mean, this was as good as you know what we saw that won the Rose Bowl a few years ago defenses that they put up in there in the 80s under George Perlis when they won a Rose Bowl. I mean, this was a historically great defense for Michigan State, and they wasted it. That's tough to do that, and I've seen a few of those at Iowa. Uh, that, is, that is tough to do that, and you're right, they did. Um, New, Year's, New Year's Day, Ohio State 28, Washington 23. Probably wasn't as close as that. And you have a quarterback in Haskins who throws for 50 touchdown passes this year. 50. 50 spot. Um, Nate Stanley of Iowa has thrown for 52 in two years, which is the most, the highest two-year total in Iowa football history. And Haskins went for 50 this year. Um, 13-1. Urban Meyer says he's done. Well, it was overall, in the end, Ohio State pretty much had the season we thought they were going to have all along, the entire offseason. It just didn't arrive at that point the way almost any of us would have envisioned. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the historic season Dwayne Haskins had. He's going to do something here that no Big Ten quarterback's done since 1995, and that's get picked in the first round of the draft. And I think there's an outside shot he'll be the number one overall pick. I, we've seen a recent trend, you know, with the new rookie salary cap in the NFL. It's... Uh, it's not as prohibitive to trade up for guys, you know, whether so it's Jared Goff or other players we've seen in recent years, Carson Wentz. In fact, those two happened in the same draft. I think he will not get beyond the top five. I, I could foresee a scenario where he's the only quarterback taken uh, in the first round of the draft. And you're talking about a historic season, you know, essentially, you know, Drew Brees' best season at Purdue is what Dwayne Haskins did uh, at Ohio State. You know, Ohio State had had 1,000-yard receiver in school history until this year. Mm-hmm. They had three receivers get over 500 yards receiving. That had never happened at Ohio State before. So keep in mind that they never really could run the football. They didn't play any defense this season at all until the last two weeks of the year against us and then in the bowl game against Washington. So he was kind of a one-man show out there um, and, and put together um, a, a tremendous season, no question about it. And, 
you know, you look at Urban Meyer's legacy, and it's very similar to what happened at Florida. Now, the now Ohio State fans, unless he goes and coaches someplace else in the next year or two, I don't think they will feel about him in five or ten years the way Florida fans feel about Urban Meyer, which is, you know, he won a bunch of games here to win at all costs and then left us a mess. I think the Ohio State program is in better shape now than the Florida program was when he left it. Um, it is fascinating that in in the interim, after he announced his retirement, the the Powell, Ohio Police Department finally decided to release the Zach and Courtney Smith records and basically verified everything Courtney Smith said <laughs> that he knew all along, that his wife knew all along. But that's going to be pretty much water under the bridge now. Courtney Smith wants to move on with her life. Ohio State gets the storybook ending. They will move on as well. And now we'll see what Ryan Day will do. That is a topic we will have a conversation about here in the offseason. Of course, they've, they've added Justin Fields. I, I don't see how that's that big of a deal, though. And here's why. Okay. They were already winning the league pretty much every other year at the worst anyway. It's not like Justin Fields is going to throw for better than 50 touchdowns in a season. <laughs> All right? We've never seen anybody do that in the entire history of the Big Ten. So it's not like he's going to come in and throw for 60. So... You know, I, I don't think Justin Fields going to Ohio State is as meaningful, not to mention we haven't seen Justin Fields play a you know, meaningful snap of college football yet. But just based on recruiting reputation alone, I don't, I don't think it's as meaningful as if he went to, say, Penn State, you know, where, where th- that was the original school he committed to before he switched and went to Georgia. If he went to a school like Penn State, who's kind of been knocking on the door, they should have beaten Ohio State last year. They had him beat and then lost at the end the year before. They beat him two years ago. They've kind of been the one team able to compete with Ohio State in the East. You know, mano y mano, Michigan is not. So if a Justin Fields went to Penn State, then I think that'd be a much bigger impact right. on the Big Ten. But Ohio State's already number one. So, I mean, how much better can you get than that? You know what right. I'm saying? No, that's a great point. That's a very good point. Um, Kentucky beats Penn State 27-4 in the Citrus Bowl. Kentucky gets to 10 wins in football. I'm sure you'll have the answer to this question. How often does that happen? Never. It's the greatest season they've ever had, including when Jerry Claiborne and Bear Bryant was the coach there in terms of number of wins. There you go. There you go. Trace McSorley's done at Penn State. Um, Didn't like him playing against my team. But he's actually one of the guys I'd rather enjoy watching play against everyone else. Tormented most people. Is he the greatest quarterback in Penn State history? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. I don't. I, I mean, you know, they've had other greats, you know, um, Kerry Collins, the aforementioned, Chuck Fusina and some guys. But um, I don't think there's any question uh, that he is. And, you know, they've had some interesting attrition here this week. They've lost a couple of guys that when I was forecasting who I thought was going to come back and return, I thought we're coming back. So, you know, they were at one point poised to have about 16 starters coming back next year, the most in the East. And then you just, you're kind of assume Tommy Stevens has been hanging around there for three years, waiting for Trace McSorley to leave that he at the very least he could be capable, but he's been hurt the last few weeks. He missed all of the bowl practices they've had more attrition than i thought they're going to be younger next year than i thought um so that will be a program that will be interesting to watch because the one thing that they never really developed this year they they, they never really 
uh, figured out. I mean, Trace McSorley, for the most part, was a. It was him and Miles Sanders. It, it was a one-man team. So, you know, they they lose four games with the best quarterback in school history. Uh, I know Ricky Slade behind him was a five-star tailback too, but they're going to be. Uh, that's that. Uh, I'm a little. I, I kind of wonder where they are right now uh, with some of the attrition I saw them have this week. It was not, it was more than I expected. I, I never thought, for example, Miles Sanders would go to the NFL in his redshirt sophomore year. So that's worth watching at Penn State, I think. In Iowa, 27-22 victors over Mississippi State. Iowa with negative 15 yards rushing in this game. 199 total yards. They had 200 total yards last year in their pinstripe bowl victory. Uh, Nate Stanley with three touchdown passes against a defense that had only allowed five passing touchdowns the entire season. Iowa scored more points against Mississippi State than Bama did. And again, Bama held them to nothing. Uh, transitive properties uh, aside, this was a really solid win for uh, Iowa, and, and a rather entertaining game, one that a lot of people didn't think would be. No doubt, uh, and uh, put the Big Ten over the top. Uh, second year in a row, the league's had a winning record in bowls. And if you look at the overall bowl records for all the conferences, it's pretty balanced out, actually. I mean, there's a lot of parity mm-hmm. there. Uh, so I, I don't know that this was a year that one conference was definitely superior to the rest. But here's what I liked the most about that Iowa win, but it's also what if I were an Iowa fan, I would be pulling my hair out, okay? It is the, the, the versatility, the flexibility, the game plan flexibility Iowa showed to win the game. Um, and maybe mentally as a coaching staff, when you're facing an SEC team and they have all those gaudy defensive stats you just talked about, and they got two guys in the defensive line that might be first-round picks and Montez Sweat and Jeffrey Simmons, maybe. And when you, and then you also don't have 20 hours of three days a week of 20-hour practice, 20 hours of total practice, but an entire month to prepare for this just one game and there's no game after it. Okay, you throw all those factors in, maybe mentally it's easier to say at the eight-minute mark of the second quarter, um, hey, guys, we're not going to beat these guys running the ball, so time to change things up here. Okay, Maybe it's easier to do that than it is in the rhythm of week-to-week in the Big Ten and short practice times and things of that nature. So on one hand, uh, a huge amount of credit to the Iowa coaching staff for the recognition that you know really the goal is to win the game, not to win the game a certain way. On the other hand, if I were an Iowa fan, I wonder, uh, why don't we do that more often? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and, and this is the conversation we're having at Michigan. I mean, people ask me all the time, you think you want to win more than Jim Harbaugh? I'm sure you get. You think you want to win more than Kirk Ferentz? No, of course we don't. It's just the difference is we're not married to a system where we think for us to win, the game has to look a certain way. And if it doesn't look that way, then we can't win. Okay, so maybe when it's a bowl game and and you don't have you know a press conference on the Monday after and another game to prepare for, maybe it's easier to throw caution to the wind and say, hey, whatever it takes. But you know, Iowa did that in its bowl game against an SEC team. Michigan didn't, and you saw the end result. Uh, it worked for Iowa. Uh, Michigan got you know its pants pulled down. Iowa, you mentioned Penn State losing some players uh, to early entrance. Iowa has now mm-hmm. lost three in Amani Hooker, Noah Fant, and, and Anthony Nelson most recently, and, and it's all but 
assume that TJ Hawkinson is also going to turn pro. Big losses for Iowa going into next year where the Big Ten West looks to be as good as maybe it's been top to bottom. So to put that in perspective, you know, the last two years in my preview, I've been doing this total roster strength to better get an assessment of how good teams are because returning starters doesn't mean what it meant 10 years ago, you know. Uh, And so I'm actually working on the Big Ten right now. I'm doing it um, in, in, during, throughout the course of the offseason to get a better read on our league. And so I already went through all the teams and, and, and their rosters in the bowl games and who I knew would come back and who I who was it was pretty obvious Dwayne Haskins wasn't going to come back. So I've already got a spreadsheet where I'm deducting guys that were on the fence right now. And so just to put this in perspective, I sent you this photo about three days ago. Iowa's roster points before these defections was right around 300. Which, you know, that would have been the most talented Big Ten. That's a very high number. This would have been the most talented Big Ten West team in the three years now I've been doing this. So now with those guys lost, you know, Iowa's lost, um, you know, because I'm not just grading them based on what their recruiting rankings were, but on their on-field performance. And Hooker and Nelson have both overperformed their recruiting ranking. So now Iowa's, I think, down about eight more points to about 292, which is still one heck of a score for uh, for typically where I was. Yeah, they're usually like 260s, I think. Yes, but it's also much closer to where the rest of that division is now heading into the rest of the year. So um, those were some big losses for the for the Hawkeyes, no question about it. All right, that'll wrap up this installment of the A10 podcast. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you soon.